Hey everyone, Susan Finch here with special edition of Rooted in Revenue. So today I have two authors. I have Tom Williams and Tom Sane, and they are the authors of The Seller's Challenge. And they are going to give us a few of the tips because they cover 10 in the things that kill a sale. We're just getting to the meat of it. So guys, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you, Susan. What was the genesis for this book? The genesis of the book really started when Tom Sane and I, we've been working together for years and we got together for lunch one day and we just started talking about, in our experience, all of the different programs that we've been teaching for years on methodology about how to win a complex sale, call planning, execution, large account management, negotiation. And we started to talk about the types of challenges that routinely sellers find themselves with. And what they would do is come up to us during a break or or oftentimes over drinks or over dinner. They say, guys, this really is an interesting methodology. We really believe it. It works well, but here's my real challenge. And they would talk to us about the challenges. Ultimately, we ended up writing in the book. So Tom and I, over lunch one day, sat down and wrote out about 20, 25 challenges. And then we picked 10 for the book. Uh, and that's really how the genesis of how it got started. The idea, there's so many books that have been written on negotiation. So many books around how you do call planning. So many books on sales coaching. We wanted to do something different that was much more practical and something that would be useful in the day-to-day life of the sales rep. And that was, what are the day-to-day challenges they come up with all the time and have to overcome? I love it. That is what it comes down to. And if, if I could just add a, an amplifier to it, we wanted a book that someone would put in their computer bag and fill it full of lining, highlighting, and read back over sections as they encountered problems rather than saying, this is the kind of book that I read it. It was very good. I learned some things. I put it on my shelf, and now I'm going to go out in the world. We wanted this to be more like a field guide than it was just a theory. What a great way to put that. You want a book that's highlight worthy, highlighter worthy. Yeah, exactly. That it, it becomes a tool on your desk that you can re- reach out and tab or whatever you need to as you need it rather than something you've accomplished and put it away in one, you know, all done. Absolutely. So in the book, stakeholder mapping, what is that? And why is that so important? Well, I'll take that. I'll start with that one, Tom, and you, you can add in. I think, you know, stakeholder mapping to us really, uh, Susan, it's just a process that you use to identify all the key, key stakeholders, the users, the special list, you know, the third party influencers, anyone who's involved in the buying and decision making process. And really, that's the genesis or the starting point, if you will, to develop a concrete strategy of how to win the sale. If you don't identify who all the key people are, you always are going to get blindsided at some point by someone who came out of the woodwork and had influence or power, authority, and you didn't even know they exist. Stakeholder mapping is really a, a way for sellers to really get their hands wrapped around who's really involved in this opportunity. And there are a number of different issues that it's more than just mapping, it's really profiling. And what you're doing as opposed to just indicating that this person is involved, check it off, maybe I should go talk to them. You're asking yourself questions like, what really matters to this individual? How do they measure change in their world that makes sense to them? Because different people in an organization have different metrics that they're focused on. So if something would make your job better, I as a seller need to understand. And then we need to collaborate on how best to achieve that for you. So you've got questions like, what really matters to people? How do you measure success? What is your degree of urgency? One of the things that I think we've, I don't wanna say 
found lacking. What we have found is an occasional omission when sellers go out and conduct interviews is they come back with a sense that the person was really interested in what we were talking about and interested in our product, but I really didn't get a gauge on how urgent their need for change was. And what you want to be able to do is to tap into that. And if you can do that, then you've got, okay, this is someone who's ready to buy versus someone who is just shopping. Well, that makes sense because I was wondering as you were explaining about stakeholder mapping, how that compared to what another really popular term too is, you know, buyer persona. They're kind of related, but it's very different. So thank you for that deep dive on that. You wrote a chapter on status quo all by itself. Why? I think the main reason for that, Susan, is when you look at the statistics, you can win a deal, you can lose a deal, but oftentimes the deal just goes dark. And it's just the customer decides, whatever I'm doing today is is fine. That's status quo. The statistics tell us that's about 22% of forecasted deals. In other words, that's a deal that's in the forecast, that's in the funnel, and that a sales rep is forecasted to close for their manager, and it never closes. So it's a pretty big number. If you think about taking just a small percentage of those deals that are in status quo and putting them into the win column, most organizations would blow off their number and, and greatly exceed their quota. So that really was, was the main reason. The second thing is, is that it's, you know, we view status quo as the biggest threat to, uh, to winning a deal. And the, second, and the third thing I would probably add in is that status quo is pretty safe for the buyer. But what they're doing today is change is difficult for people. So staying in, in the, with whatever the current product or solution is, it's a safe, it's a safe bet for the, uh, for the customer. And so we think you know, that's a chapter that uh, deserves its own attention to really get buyers to understand what it is, what are the myths around status quo, and how do you overcome it? And, and Tom, just to kind of elaborate on some of that, there is a significant advantage that many current providers hold over someone, however motivated and however skilled and however eloquent the outsider might be, there are advantages that the insiders have. For example, they can get access to people at almost any opportune time. They don't have to schedule it because they often have offices in the same building or working with product that's in the same building. So in many of these cases, you have people that have informal lines of communication that you're not going to master. And that informal communication gives them the opportunity to send value messages continuously, whereas you have to have sometimes a sales appointment, a call appointment, to be able to get in and to work with that individual to agree upon something that's of value. So uh, there are advantages. Now, there are also disadvantages, but the point being, and and that I think Tom brought out when he was talking about the risk, is, is that you're looking for, is there going to be some change that I can't predict? And for the buyer, often they will think, if I can, if I can live with what I've got, I'm going to be pretty safe. And so that's the, I guess, critical factor. Uh, it's risk mitigation on the part of the status quo. That, is a, that puts it more, a lot more into perspective. And it paints, for me, I, I was walking through that scenario with you, like physically in an office seeing how that does happen, those relationships happen. And the other part of that too is in our world of remote relationships, kind of like what we're doing here, a lot more offices are also following that model. 
And so it's the opposite problem there. They aren't together as often and their time is very constrained when they can actually visit. And unless it is top of mind, high priority, it won't make the list for that time that they're all together. And, and I think what you're pointing out is that there are complexities for selling that exist nowadays that never existed before. Right. If you're an outsider to an organization, the complexities hit you a little harder and you have to make compensations for it. You can't afford to, you know, back to shareholder mapping, you, you can't afford to miss a critical influencer in the process simply because you were running out of time. You've got to make the time to get to those people to make things work. I agree. Now we're coming up on a break right now. When we come back, what I want to tackle is about RFPs, that chapter, and two takeaways from it. So really quick, we're going to take a break. And this is Susan Finch with Funnel Radio. And my show is Rooted in Revenue. My guests are Thomas Sane and Tom Williams. And we are talking about their book, The Seller's Challenge. Paul, take it away. All right, we're back. Susan Finch here. And my guests today are Thomas Sane and Tom Williams. And we are talking about their book, The Seller's Challenge. There are so many wonderful chapters. They have 10 points in this book, especially that are covered that will help you avoid your deal killers. And one of the things I want to get to guys is the chapter on for sellers that handle RFPs. That chapter is a must read because that is such a complex. It's one thing to say, Hey, do you like my stuff? Yeah, I'm going to sign up and buy it. But when we come into the more complex type of sale, more detailed sale with, requiring an RFP, what are the one to two takeaways that are most important for the readers to know? Well, Susan, I think there's a, I think the two that I would take, I would take away, uh, provide, and then I'll let Tom uh, offer his suggestion is, one is, is that we describe that there's four different really types of RFPs. Um, we call them fair RFPs, favorite RFPs, fake RFPs, or forced RFPs. And the difference is kind of the following. One, uh, the, the FAIR RFP is the one that identifies the application or specifications and the requirements that are essential to meet the buyer organization's needs. You know, and that's really intended to be on, uh, provide equal footing for suppliers, you know, and a format for presenting their solutions, their products and services, whatever they provide. The favorite RFP is one that's written in a way that favors one company over another, right? And so that's really a smokescreen, if you think about it, to create the impression of fairness when it's providing an advantage to one particular supplier over another. The fake RFP is when the buying organization is really satisfied with their present supplier, the present vendor, and just uses the process, you know, to, uh, to satisfy government or industry standards, you know, or maybe some statutes that are involved. The forced RFP is a process designed to compel the current supplier to provide more favorable terms and conditions. You know, so in other words, uh, I, I issue an RFP to, to a supplier that I'm very satisfied with, but I simply want to see if I can get a 5 or 10% reduction uh, in price because they're afraid we may switch vendors. And then the, I think the second point I would make about the RFPs is in the book, we, we show a graph seller getting and actually winning the RFP if they're not part of the process of actually helping to develop the RFP. And so it's a good, it's a good overview for the seller to decide, do I really want to respond? 
do I have a fighting chance in this one, or is this one really that I have no chance at all of winning? And, and Tom, I think one of the things that uh, we like to do in the book and was uh, as we had people review the chapter before it was published, they really said, you know, this is something that I wish all of my sales team could know. And that is that there are signs that you can look at to indicate who is involved and the degree to which they are uh, committed to a regimen of actions that maybe don't favor your ability to communicate and learn more about the interests of the buying organization. And, and so we look at what are the signs that, uh, that you may be, this may be open to contest and competition or signs that perhaps this has already been awarded and they're just waiting on a, a competitive price. So as we look at that, for me, one of the things that we wanted to get across, I think, is as a competitor, make wise choices. You're investing a lot of time. Make sure that you're investing time in something that's winnable. The other thing, too, is to sometimes take an RFP and the provisions of the RFP as fixed in stone. Uh, sometimes the individual writing that might be from procurement or purchasing or the budget office. And so they write something that they think is appropriate, but in reality is very restrictive for everybody, not just you, but for the uh, incumbent supplier as well. And so what you want to do is to be able to give honest, timely feedback and tell them that if certain things don't happen, then unfortunately, you're not gonna be in a position to bid on that. And that almost flies in the face of everything salespeople know. Everybody wants to be compliant. Well, unfortunately, there are times when not being compliant can actually help you out and favor you. And so saying, I'm sorry, that doesn't work, let me show you a solution that does work, helps them out and you out. So it's a question sometimes of becoming collaborative and creating an exchange that's collaborative as opposed to compliant. So when we do that, that that's to me a big point. The, the second one I'd give you is that sometimes guerrilla tactics are appropriate. I, I know that's, you know. No, that, I, I agree with you. I, I've been in that position bidding on like city websites, city redesigns, city marketing plans. And you, know, you can tell when it's come from IT, when they wrote it. You can exactly. tell when it's come from somebody who has a buddy that they want to hire. And I've also been at the other end where we wrote our the own, you know, RRFP to put out to our competitors. But we, you know, when it's your existing supplier that they want to keep, it's like the one you were saying, it's almost like a fake RFP where you have stacked the deck so heavily in your favor. Right. And, and one, one of the, the things, just to kind of close off the point here on guerrilla tactics, is that sometimes it will say um, there's, there's some states that require, for example, you to have the first page as the price page. And what it really tells you is that if you don't fall within whatever their uh, estimated budget is for this particular purchase, uh, they're not gonna go any further. Right. Well, one of the things to think about is sometimes blow that up. And by blowing that up, I mean, don't put it where they think it is, 
make them read the stuff that is essential. You have to have good information to make that. It can be a risky decision on your part, but the reality is you can do it. And the second thing is sometimes give them two financial proposals. One that has critical elements in it that you think they need and should be paying for, and the other one that could be a slimmed down price estimate based upon uh, some changes that would be appropriate for that particular account. So for me, it's take it by the hand. I mean, your, your job isn't to just comply. Your job is to enlighten your buyer, and, and that'll help. This is Susan Finch and with the Funnel Radio Network on Rooted in Revenue. And I'm here with Thomas Sane and Tom Williams with their book, The Seller's Challenge. And we are breaking this into two parts because this book, folks, you must have this. This is highlight worthy, needs to sit on your desk because they are tackling things here that all of you run into. And it doesn't matter whether you're always pitching to large companies, small companies, there are terms and ways of thinking that they're going to turn on end for you. So I'm going to highly, highly recommend that you not only listen to this episode, but the following episode where we continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. Where can they find you two and your book? Susan, they can find us on, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, we'd love to connect with any of the, any of your listeners. Uh, they can also go to our website, www.strategicdynamicsfirm.com or they connect us, connect, uh, can connect with us uh, at T Williams at strategicdynamicsfirm.com or T. Sane at strategicdynamicsfirm.com. We'd and they can find your you. book on Amazon. Yeah, it's on Amazon. It's also available via Kindle, and it's in uh, local bookstores. Wonderful. We'll look forward to the next episode. Thank you.